Today's scripture reading is from Esther, chapter 4. Listen now to the word of the Lord. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman go to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law, to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to this kingdom, to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to, to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, and though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. And now in the hearing of your word as it is preached, open our hearts, our minds, our ears, that we might receive all that you have for us. And in that hearing, help us to be strengthened and encouraged and to obey. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, Amen. Uh, we continue through the narrative lectionary. Um, 
And we are now toward the end of the history of the nation of Israel, as it is told in the scriptures. All of the warnings of the prophets have gone unheeded, and the Israelites ended up in exile in Babylon. And during that exile, the Babylonians were in turn defeated by the Medes and Persians. And our reading this morning takes place in the time of the Persian dynasty uh, in the capital city of Susa. Esther is a orphaned third generation immigrant living in exile with her cousin Mordecai. One day, Esther, along with many other young women, are forcibly taken from their homes and taken to the palace as a potential replacement for the recently deposed queen who had displeased the king. To be blunt today, we would say that Esther was kidnapped and is a victim of sex trafficking. To her credit, she survives the sexual assault, she endures the trauma, and becomes queen. The king, once the queen has been replaced, then promotes the evil Haman as his right-hand man. Haman is a very proud man, and he expects everyone to bow down to him in deference. Esther's cousin Mordecai, however, refuses to do so for reasons that are not stated. And Haman is so angry about this that he wants to punish not only Mordecai, but all of Mordecai's people. And so he manipulates the foolish king into signing an edict that will allow him to commit genocide against the Jews in all of the Persian territories. In exchange, he offers the king 10,000 talents of silver, which is an enormous sum, which he likely plans to get by confiscating from those whose lives he will destroy. The edict understandably creates chaos throughout the empire, but chapter three of Esther closes with the clueless king and the scheming Haman sitting down nonchalantly for a drink as if this were just another weekend. And that brings us to our reading today. Mordecai hears about this news, this edict, and he immediately tears his clothes, puts on sackcloth and ashes as signs of mourning. And he cries out with a loud and bitter cry. We're sympathetic to Mordecai for the potential extermination of his people. However, we have to temper our sympathies because this disaster, this potential disaster, could have easily been averted had Mordecai simply bowed down to Haman as everyone else had done. His loud displays of mourning draws Esther's attention and she first sends him clothing. I think she probably wants him to have some clothes so that she can enter the palace in proper attire and speak with him face to face. Mordecai, however, refuses and Esther sends then one of her servants to find out what's going on. And Mordecai then tells him to communicate to Esther what's been going on and even sends along a copy of the edict as evidence so that he can show Esther this is really what's going on. And then, as he has been doing all along, he commands Esther 
to go to the king and to beg his favor and to plead with him on behalf of her people, on behalf of her people. Up to this point in the story of Esther, Mordecai has told her to keep her ethnicity, her Jewishness, a secret. And for the four years that she's been queen, she's been able to keep that a secret. But now he's telling her to reveal it. He's outing her and calls her to plead and to beg on behalf of her people. You know, it's hard to believe that up to this point that Esther has been living in such a bubble that she doesn't even know what's going on. And so she tells Mordecai that she cannot plead on behalf of her people as he suggests or as he insists because to approach the king could potentially lead to her death. So Mordecai then takes a harder approach. He had tried to explain and to plead and now he practically threatens her that she should not delude herself into thinking that she alone of all her people will be spared simply because she's the queen. And he further tells her that he has every confidence that whether or not she does something, God will rescue, God will deliver. And then he concludes with this theological reflection. And who knows, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai is not sure, but he's asking, who knows? Maybe this is why you are where you are now. Maybe this is why you have become queen. Mordecai is confident that God will deliver his people. Even though it looks incredibly bleak at the moment, he believes that God will deliver and rescue his people. If Esther doesn't do anything, he's still confident that relief and deliverance will come from another place. You know, readers of Esther have long noticed that God is never explicitly mentioned in the entire book. God never appears in the entire book. And for that reason, it's been a very unpopular book throughout the ages. The New Testament, for example, never mentions the book of Esther. Among the Dead Sea Scrolls, in which archaeologists have found every, uh, a piece of every other book of the Old Testament, the one book that they found not a single fragment is the book of Esther. In his table talks, Martin Luther said of the book of Esther, I wish that it did not exist. And John Calvin, who wrote so many commentaries on the books of the Bible, never wrote one on the book of Esther. Some think that the book of Esther is more about Jewish nationalism than it is about the Jewish faith. But I think that the whole point of the book is that God's presence is not obvious, right? But that our faith calls us to question and to ask, who knows? To look at the seeming hiddenness of God and to ask, who knows? The Christian social critic, Os Guinness, says that our world has become a world without window, windows to the spiritual realm. 
that our cultural, secular worldview has pushed faith so far to the margins that it shuts out every reality that we cannot concretize with our five senses. So God who is hidden, a God who is not named, a God who does not say thus saith the Lord, a God who does not rescue through the ark or through the Red Sea is a God that does not exist. But the book of Esther suggests otherwise. Consider the name Esther, for example. It's probably derived from a Babylonian name, the goddess Ishtar. This makes sense. They're living in exile, and their parents gave them names so they could fit in. They gave them Babylonian names so they could fit in, as many of us have had you know, American names to fit in. However, there is another possibility. The name Esther could come from Hebrew roots, and if so, it would mean something like, I will hide, I am hidden, or I've hidden myself. Some ancient rabbis took this as a reference that Esther was hiding herself in the palace, that she was hiding her ethnicity. But others have suggested that perhaps her name indicates the hiddenness of God in her life and in the story of Esther. In Deuteronomy 31, for example, God tells the Israelites what will happen when they abandon him for other gods. But I will surely hide my face in that day because of all the evil which they will do, for they will turn to other gods. They're in exile. They have turned from God. And so God now is hiding his face from his people. It's not that God has abandoned them, nor that God has... Uh, left their presence entirely, but that God is hidden from them because they lack the eyes of faith to see. They're living in a world without windows to the spiritual realm. But for all his shortcomings, his questionable actions, Mordecai is still confident that God will rescue and deliver. He's confident because he knows the history of his people. He knows the words of the prophets. Most notably, Esther 4 follows the pattern and the words of Joel 2. And I just want you to see this. Can I get that slide up? Here's a side-by-side -side comparison with Joel chapter 2 with Esther 4. You see, the Lord declares, even now, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, which is exactly what Mordecai had done. And rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, which is what Mordecai seems to be doing. For he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents, relents over disaster. And Joel asks, who knows? Who knows? whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, which are the words that Esther will speak, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants. In other words, gather everyone. So, so you can see the response is exactly the way that Joel describes 
Mordecai knows the scriptures. He knows the words of the prophets. He knows about weeping and mourning, and he humbly asks, who knows? Who knows? It's a cold word among the people of faith. It's like when I say, that place which shall not be named. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And so when they follow these actions, they're communicating with one another. They're reminding each other of the words of the prophets and the promises that perhaps God will relent and rescue. Without explicitly quoting the scriptures, without explicitly mentioning the name of God, they show their faith by responding to the words of the prophet Joel and placing themselves, who knows, under the mercy of God. I think it's a strong faith in God that is framed within this humble posture of acknowledging their limited knowledge. He's not certain. None of us can ever be. But he has enough faith to ask, who knows? Maybe, maybe this is how God will deliver. Maybe this is what God is doing. They cannot see the obvious hand of God working in their lives, in their rescue. But they find in their circumstances the suggestion, the possibility of God's presence and ask, who knows? And that sensibility is bolstered by their understanding and their knowledge of the scriptures. You know, it reminds me exactly of what the Apostle Paul did in one of his letters. Paul wrote a letter uh, to a man named Philemon on behalf of a runaway slave by the name of Onesimus. It's the letter of Philemon that we have in the New Testament. Uh, Onesimus, uh, we know, uh, stole something from Philemon, and he ran away and got as far away as he could from his master. And at some point, he heard the Apostle Paul preach, and he got saved. And so Paul decides to send Onesimus back to Philemon. And so he writes this letter to Philemon, telling him, this is what happened, and this is what I'd like for you to do. And in that letter, Paul makes this very similar theological reflection. For this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Paul is suggesting, perhaps, who knows, maybe the reason that he stole from you and ran away was so that he could meet me and hear the gospel, and now he can go back to you much more than a slave, no longer a slave, but as a fellow brother in Christ. He's not sure. But he's asking, perhaps, perhaps this is why. Who knows? Maybe this is what God is doing in his life and now in yours. And I think that's what Mordecai is suggesting. Maybe all the trauma, Esther, that you went through, as terrible as it was, now has you in a position to bring about rescue and deliverance for your people. He's not sure, as none of us can ever be, 
but we can ask, perhaps. Who knows? Maybe this is what God is doing right now. Isn't this how most of us are when it comes to faith? When we think about our lives? We may have those occasional moments when, when God is speaking to us so clearly, when, when God's presence is so obvious that there's no dispute, there's no question. But I suspect that most of us, most of the time, we experience God's working in our lives and the lives of those around us in a way that is hidden. And I think we all experience those moments and times, perhaps long stretches, in which God feels absent. It requires faith to remember what God has done before and through the eyes of faith to ask once again, who knows? Maybe God is doing something right now. I know that some people will take a look at this passage and the circumstances of what's going on here and will say that, you know, life is just a matter of chance. It's just coincidence and, you know, we're, we're sort of um, what we call um, seeing through the eyes of faith, we're just connecting dots that are really unrelated and, and just, just random. Uh, they, they don't, that's, it doesn't mean anything. But as Frederick Buechner wrote in The Sacred Journey, the question is not, the question is not whether the things that happen to you are chance or God's, because of course they are both at once. Let me say that again. The question is not whether the things that happen to you are chance things or God's things, because of course they are both at once. There is no chance thing through which God cannot speak. Esther's response to Mordecai is really, really remarkable. Not only does she understand the hidden code referenced to the words of the prophet Joel, but look at how she takes charge of the situation. Up to this point, she has always listened to Mordecai. She had obeyed every single one of his words. But now, she takes charge. She decisively commands Mordecai to gather everyone and to hold the fast on her behalf. And she promises that she too will fast and she will go to the king and risk her life. And will if you read on, you'll find out that she does not beg the king as Mordecai had told her to do. She will find her own path. She will decide how she's going to approach this problem. She will come up with her own creative way. She had come to her position as queen under the worst of circumstances. And considering how the Persian court has been run, it's understandable that she kept herself hidden and laid low. But now in this moment of need, she rises to the occasion. She embraces her position. She embraces her power and her faith. And she sees and is willing to use her status, her resources, all that she has been given to see what God might do. It's an enormous transformation. She's gone from a victim hiding in a bubble to commanding others, the entire nation, to follow her. And the chapter concludes with Mordecai doing everything as Esther had ordered him. She goes from being commanded 
to commanding. I think that's a lot of hope. There's a lot of hope in her transformation. Not just survival, but a radical transformation of confidence, of courage. Most of you know that I'm a, a big fan <clears throat> of science fiction and that I will um, read and watch pretty much anything that gets categorized as science fiction. Uh, whenever I have time, and occasionally whenever I don't have time, um, I'll, I'll read or watch whatever is on or whatever gets recommended to me. So uh, this past week, uh, I've been watching, I've started to watch uh, The Wheel of Time on Amazon Prime. Um, it's not great um, so far, and I don't know that I'd recommend it to you, but, um, and the problem is that it's hard not to compare it to other great uh, epic fantasy series like Game of Thrones, and especially The Lord of the Rings. Um, in fact, very early on, one of the characters in The Wheel of Time says to his son, all we can do is the best we can with the life that's given to us. And you know, like some of you are laughing, because that's Lord of the Rings, right? You might remember that uh, Gandalf delivered a very similar line, delivered it better, because um, when Frodo realized, like, oh, this is terrible, you know, this, uh, what's going on? I wish I weren't born. Uh, I wish, you know, this just wasn't happening to me. And Gandalf says, so do I, and so do all who live to see such signs. But this is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that has been given to us. Right? That, that's better than all we can do is the best that we can with the life that's given to us. But they both point at the truth. None of us choose the time that we're living in. None of us get to choose the problems that we face. None of us get to pick up, you know, who our parents are going to be or uh, what century we're born into. My wife used to say, you know, I should have, you know, I, I would have fit in a lot better in the 60s, you know, with my... Um, temperament and my um, sensibilities. And, and she didn't mean 1960s, she meant 1560s. <laughs> None of us get to decide what illnesses we will have to put up with. None of us get to decide what kinds of difficulty our children will face. None of us gets to decide how our parents will fare without us. Esther certainly didn't ask to be queen or to face the extermination of her people. I didn't ask to be the pastor during a season of pandemic. But such are the times that we are in. None of our children ask to be a student during this time of such great disruption. But such are the times we are in. And we have to decide what we are going to do with the time that has been given to us. But unlike these characters in these fantasies, we need not journey on with mere grim determination or stoic resignation. We press on with hope and faith because we can ask, and who knows? We can have confidence that this time, this time, is not an accident, it's not pure chance. It's not random. God has placed you in this time for a reason.
You can have confidence in that. I don't mean to trivialize Mordecai's and Esther's situation. It's certainly a once-in-a-lifetime moment that they faced. And I'm not suggesting that the questions that you may have about your life right now is comparable in scale to what they faced. Certainly not. But as a people of faith, when God's presence seems hidden in times of trial, who knows is a good, faithful question to ask. It demonstrates a faith in a sovereign God that we ourselves cannot see. It acknowledges that God still sees us. Who knows? So instead of feeling hopeless or threatened or scared or wishing this weren't happening to you or that you wish you could get out of this particular difficulty, instead, I would exhort you to approach it with confidence that God is at work and ultimately even this Whatever this might be for you, whatever difficulty you might be facing right now, that it will work out for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon once said, had any other condition been better for you than the one in which you are in, divine love would have put you there. If God thought that your thriving and your ability to glorify him could have been greater in another time and space. God would have done it. But this is the time that God has chosen for you. This is the time. Even this season of COVID. Might be hard to believe, but this is the situation in which you can best glorify God. I've told you before that I believe every single one of you, every member of this church, that you are called and you are brought here in this time, in this moment, because you have a particular set of gifts. You have been given certain resources and knowledge and wisdom that this body needs. We need your participation and for you to ask, and who knows? Maybe you are here right now for some reason, for some purpose of God. And it's up to us to ask one another, and who knows? You know, I've been asking myself that question a lot. What particular experiences and gifts do I have that God would position me here now to be the pastor and a member of this congregation in this season? Who knows? I'm confident that God has good in store for his church. I'm confident that God will see his church through this and every other season. I'm confident that God will bring rescue and deliverance to his people with or without us. But we're given an opportunity to participate in that work. As brothers and sisters in Christ, we can challenge and encourage one another with these words. In every situation, we can call one another to consider the possibility beyond the senses and ask, perhaps God is working 
here in your life? Who knows? Maybe the situation you are in is just for such a time as this. None of us has the status or the power of a queen. But you all have powers. You all have resources and positions of influence. Perhaps God wants to do something through you right now. Perhaps this is the time for you to serve in some particular ministry. The decisions that you have to make are not likely to be as consequential as the ones that Esther faced. But who knows, but who knows what God might do through you. Let's pray. Lord, we come um, this morning and we want to come in a state of humility and humbleness. We are confident because we are a people of faith, because we have your scriptures, and because we can remember what you have done in the past, we are confident that you are still with us, that you keep your promises to be with us now and always, even to the end of the age. And we ask God that in those moments when you feel hidden from us, help us to boldly ask, in faith, who knows? Help us to see how you might be working all around us. Open our eyes and our ears. And in faith, help us to take those actions in alignment with the movement of your Holy Spirit to bring about your rescue and deliverance. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord.